All right, praise the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? I think that's good. (laughs) All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 8. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 8. It says, After many days you will be summoned. Boy, isn't this a fascinating start to it, huh? You will be summoned, an individual. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which has been a continual waste But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. And then again in Ezekiel 38, 16, it says, And you will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about when? In the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations will know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you anoint this word. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, give understanding to everybody that's here, Lord, and uh, that you would help us to understand. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. I'm continuing a series uh, called The End. And this is part three. And uh, just very carefully... In fact, I'll tell you what prompted me to start this series. Uh, do I sound funny? I feel like I'm echoing. Okay. The reason I started this series, uh, I noticed um, trending on Twitter uh, was the Gog and Magog War. And it was due to the fact that Iran, Turkey, and Russia were meeting together, which is a little unusual for them to do that. And so everybody immediately uh, was drawn to Gog and Magog. Now, the reason it was so shocking was I was actually surprised that there would be that many people on Twitter that would be able to connect Gog and Magog to those three countries. That's actually pretty amazing that they would do that. How many think that's true? But it was trending. Nobody thinks that's surprising except me. Okay, does anybody think that's surprising? That, that Twitter would have that many people that would connect Iran, Russia, and uh, Turkey uh, with the Gog and Magog War, which is really takes a little bit of study to understand that. Um, so as we go into this, I just decided to do a series on different things that the Bible prophesies will happen at the end. And if you study specific books, like if I were to study Thessalonians or the Gospels or Revelation, they take you to certain segments, but it doesn't give me the ability to specifically address uh, things pretty rapidly and go from one thing to the next to the next. So part three here, I really want to understand uh, the end time Gog and Magog war. I want everybody to have a pretty good understanding of what is taught there. And it's very understa- very good. To, in fact, the reason why it's important for you to know this is because when you understand what's happening around you, uh, you don't nearly have as much fear, doubt. In fact, it, in, in, it makes you have more confidence that God knew the end from the beginning. It makes you have more confidence that God is in control and that God knows everything that's going to happen before it ever happens. Um, but if you don't know prophecy and you don't understand the Bible and you don't take the information that God gives us to understand the times that we live in, um, you'll be real susceptible to false teachers and uh, false prophets. And as we studied last week, Jesus was warning. Um, I started the end series with Jesus teaching prophecy on the Mount of Olives. And the reason I did that is because the Bible says that the greatest prophet that will ever exist, uh, Moses prophesied, I read the scripture last week in Deuteronomy 18, he said there will be a prophet that will, become, that will come that will be greater than me. Now how many know there was nobody in the Jewish mind greater than Moses? 
as a prophet. He says, there's one that's going to come among your brethren that's greater than me. Listen to him. And uh, when Jesus gives prophecy, it's very important that we listen to what he says, because to me, it's kind of the center of all prophecy. Everything that was previously delivered in the Old Testament, um, Jesus sums it up. And everything that's going to come in the book of Revelation, Jesus sums it up. And what's amazing about that prophecy, for instance, let me give you an example of one thing that's amazing about that prophecy. Jesus, as we covered in the Olivet Discourse, said that the temple would be destroyed. So the temple that you see will be destroyed, and here's how it's going to happen, and it happened within 40 years, okay? But then Jesus, in the same prophecy, says there's going to be a temple And in that temple, this abomination will be put there. And this is what's going to happen at the end. Jesus prophesied the end of the current building and said there would be another building and said this is what's going to be in that building. I mean, how many know that's a high level of prophecy? And so that's our starting point is what Jesus laid out as the end times. And so as we move forward, we want to look at this event called the uh, Gog and Magog War. And it's very simple to understand, and I'm going to attempt to give you a good foundation in one sermon. So there are five things, well in fact, before I get into that, let me say this too. Uh, Do you remember last week when I said that um, there were um, certain things that Jesus said, this is not the real labor. These are events that will occur, and this is not the end, but these things must happen. And so one of those things that you begin to see prophesied continually in the last days is there's going to be lots of false teachers and lots of false prophets. And so Jesus has five parables. And those five parables, after he gives his blueprint of what the end times are going to look like, he gives five parables. And the consistent thing with those five parables are, be watchmen, be careful and watch. And so I want you to really think of that analogy as we go into this, because what are we watching for? We're watching for false teachers and false prophets. So where would you find false prophets? In the church. Where would you find false teachers? Probably everywhere. But the thing we're really being careful about, Jesus says there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars. This is not yet the end. So what we need to do is if you were a watchman, um, in fact, I've got a dog that's a good watchman, right? I hate to use us as a, our example as a dog, but I had a uh, uh, some people that are farming watermelons around us and they came to our house and they said, hey, we have some inspectors coming, can you put him away? Because he's such a good watchman. In fact, if you step over the territorial line, guess who will be waiting for you there? If you go anywhere near my front door, guess who will be barking and alerting everybody that somebody's at the door? I can count on him to faithfully be a good watchman. And an even better watchman, if you see the olden days when they had a, they had a wall and they put watchmen on the walls. And I want you to imagine that that's what we are because that's what Jesus is asking us to be. And so when you're a watchman, Every time a human being is walking toward the wall, in fact, um, you have to identify what the threat is. And so you don't just automatically say enemy and shoot him before you identify what the threat is. And so as watchmen on the wall, we have to be watching when there is a war or a rumor of war, we need to first open the Bible and say, wait a minute, what are we seeing here? When there is a teaching that comes into our church, the first thing we should say is, what does the Bible say, and does this apply to what we know to be true? And so the, the thing that I think Jesus is trying to protect us from is in the last days, there's so many outrageous prophecies. And you say, well, that's not bad, though. They'll be even more ready. They'll be even more. No, what it does is makes them less ready. Because when there's red alert, and everybody is warned of things that aren't in the Bible, then you begin to have fatigue. You begin to stop watching because you've had so many people cry wolf. And so that's why Jesus was saying, this is false labor, 
don't fall into these traps. But I want you to be watchmen where you're carefully looking and saying, you know what? Here's some things that are developing. And yes, this possibly could be one of these prophecies in the Bible. So the way that we do that is we become good students of the Bible and then we look at the news. We don't look at the news. Listen to this very carefully. We don't look at the news and try to force it into the Bible. We got to look at the Bible first and then only allow it to come in if it looks like it's accurately what the Bible says it's going to be or else we'll live in fear all the time. Everybody understand that. But we have to understand prophecy. So if you are a good journalist, you're taught to ask the six questions. Everybody know the six questions of journalism? And so that's what we're going to ask here. Who, what, when, where, or I'm sorry, when, where, why, and how. So we're going to make it really simple. We're going to answer those six questions on Ezekiel 38 and 39. Who is it that's involved? What are they doing? When is it going to happen? Where is it going to be at? Why is it happening? And how is it happening? Okay? And so we're going to make it really simple. So as you go into the who, and you begin to answer who is involved in the battle of Gog and Magog, um, basically there are ten entities that are listed there. And you can find them in Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 1 to 7. It says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face against who? Gog. So we want to write that down. Gog. Who is this Gog? Of the land of Magog. So we got another one there. The land of Magog. The prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tabal. Now some of your versions will not have Rosh in there and I'll explain that in a minute. And prophesy against who? Him. So who's the him? Gog. And say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tabal. I will turn you around and put hook, hooks in your jaws. I will lead you out and all your army, horses, horsemen, Splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, write that down, Ethiopia and Libya are with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all their troops. And many other people will be among them. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your company. We are gathered about you and be a guard for them. Now you say, how do we know it's the last days? Well, the two scriptures I read in verse 8 and verse 16 very clearly says that God will summon them in the last days. It says, you'll come against my people like a cloud to cover them. It shall come about in the last days. I will bring you against my land so the nations will know me that I am sanctified um, through you before their eyes. So this is something that's going to happen in the last days. So the first thing when we begin to look at this is if we we have to ask the question, who is this Gog? G-O-G. Gog. And so this word Gog, it's used 11 times in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which Ezekiel 38 and 39 covers this entire war. In fact, let me, um, I probably should have done this before, but let me give you a little bit of a background of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was from a priestly family, and he lived around the time when Jerusalem was destroyed. And so he's watching the destruction of Jerusalem. At first he comes, and the first part of the book is he's prophesying the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem as a man who's serving as a priest in the temple. Then he begins to prophesy the destruction of the nations that are around Jerusalem. Then in about 34, chapter 34, the temple is completely destroyed and uh, Ezekiel is exiled in the second exile. So he goes to Babylon and he continues to prophesy. 
So now there was doom and gloom in the first 33 chapters. And now Ezekiel is beginning to prophesy the restoration of Israel. And so as he begins to prophesy the restoration of Israel, the first thing that he really prophesies is that Israel physically will go back to the land. And this is an amazing prophecy. How many have ever seen that in Ezekiel? That he prophesies that they will come from all around the world and be regathered. In fact, you heard it there in Ezekiel 38. They'll be regathered in the land that was a wasteland. In fact, I have a book that was written by uh, several Jewish people. Uh, at the, it was written in the year that they came back, and it has pictures of how wasteful the land was, how the land laid in ruins. It wasn't very fruitful. Um, they came from all the nations of the world. And I can tell you today, agriculturally, it's about the most fruitful land in the world. And the Bible prophesied all that. And so Ezekiel first is prophesying that they'll physically return. And then he says, and it almost sounds like it's in one shot, but it's a progression. Then they will spiritually return. And so the physical return of Israel has happened. In fact, we've seen a miracle in our generation that they came back to Israel, they're a nation again, because how many know these prophecies can't happen unless Israel's a nation? But then we haven't seen the spiritual return. So this battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is part of their spiritual return. They're going to go through this war at some time at the end after they've returned physically. And this war is going to lead to their salvation. Okay, so this is their spiritual restoration of Israel. So Ezekiel is seeing this in the last days. And he sees these people that are coming against them. And the first one he sees is a person named Gog. And this is an individual very clearly. In fact, he's mentioned 11 times and he's mentioned individually each time as him or you or another place he's called a prince. Okay, so how many realize Gog is an individual? And Gog is the leader of this confederated army that's coming against Israel. Okay, and so Gog, in, in fact, in Ezekiel 38 too, it's the son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. He is the chief prince of Meshach and Tobol. Prophesy against him. 38.24, therefore prophesy and say to Gog, this is what God says on that day when my people are living securely, will you not know it? Ezekiel 39.1, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say this is what God says, I'm against you, chief prince. So every time, it's an individual. So as far as identifying who this person is, we don't know. We just know that Gog is the individual who is the leader um, that leads this army against Israel, okay? So I want you to start picturing this. In the last days, somebody is going to rise up and they're going to have a massive army. And who is the army uh, going to be that's with him? The next one listed is Magog. It says the land of Magog, Rosh in the land of Magog. So if you look at the land of Magog... Uh, this is the Scythians, and this is the northern nomadic tribes inhabit the territory from Central Asia to the southern steppes of modern Russia. Now, what the Bible does here, just to understand this, in fact, it's a great way uh, to be able to give prophecies that are relevant to every generation. The Bible uses a chapter in the Bible called Genesis 10. And in Genesis 10, We find the sons and the grandsons of Noah, and we find out everywhere that they settled. And so all prophecy in the Bible is based on those territories where they settled. So Ezekiel uses what the names were called in his day, but they also connect directly to the original location, the landmass. So when he's prophesying, he's not prophesying nations, he's prophesying landmasses. So whoever is on that landmass today is the enemies that will come against Israel. So we've got to study who those landmasses, and that's why they give 
um, the landmass there. And so as you begin to break it down, and I want you to picture this army beginning to form behind this man named Gog. Just picture this. This would be Kazakhstan, and I'm not going to try to pronounce this, Kyrgyzia, Uzbekistan, uh, Turkmenistan, uh, Tajikistan, and northern Afghanistan. They're part of this territory. So they estimate that, that those populations and those former Soviet republics, okay, they number 60 million. So I want you to imagine tiny Israel, and we already have behind Gog an army of about 60 million. Okay, now that's not their full army, obviously. But this is a lot of people that they would be able to you know, form an army. Now we go to a term called Rosh. So who is Rosh? Um, this one is a little bit more difficult. There's two issues here. So when we look at the word Rosh, we've got to figure out, is this a proper name or is this a common noun? The noun Rosh is used in the Bible 600 times. And it just means a chief prince, a leader, or somebody who's over people. Okay, so it is a common noun that's used 600 times. But it appears to be a proper name and a people here. And so if it were a proper name and it were a people, um, then it becomes something totally different. It becomes a group of people that went by that name. So as you begin to look, and um, in fact I have translations, um, King James Version, Revised Standard Version, English Standard Version, New American Bible, and New International Version, all translated a common noun. So that's why in a lot of your translation, how many translation doesn't have the word Rosh? It just says chief prince. And so a lot of the translations won't say Rosh. But the Jerusalem Bible, New English Bible, New American Standard Bible, and several other translations use the geographic translation. So they'll use the word Rosh in there. Now as you begin to look, in fact, King James Bible says, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Debal, prophesy against him. New King James Version says, Son of man, set your face against Gog, land of Magog, chief prince of Rosh, Meshach and Debal, prophesy against him. New American Standard, Son of man, set your face toward Gog in the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshach and Debal. So depending on what version you have, you may or may not see the word Rosh. But the weight of the evidence seems to suggest that it should be a geographical name and not the proper noun. And the reason why is most Hebrew scholars say it's a proper name because of the context. It's the most natural reading of the Hebrew. Septuagint also lists it, which how many know Septuagint was about 300 years after Ezekiel actually wrote it? Okay? And so most of the translations in Greek always put Rosh as a people there. And around the time of Jerome and the Latin Vulgate, they begin to change and use the proper, uh, the common noun as opposed to the proper name. So what this means is, if it is the most natural and the most agreed upon rendering is it's Rosh, then it's very clearly Russia. That's why it's so important. Because then you begin to piece together who the people are. And uh, in the time of Ezekiel, there was a very well-known people um, in that area, and it is the um, it is the Russian people. In fact, I've got documentation from way back that's the Russian people. So now begin to look. Gog is the leader. Now you have the Russians. Now you have the 60 million Russian provinces. You see how big this army's getting? Then you have Meshach and Tabal. Well, way back in the Schofield Study Bible... He said there was very little debate that this is Moscow and Tobolsk in Siberia. But most uh, scholars agree now this is parts of central Afghanistan and maybe even parts of uh, Germany from the old communist bloc. So now you see um, large portions of Turkey and old communist German areas part of this army. Then you get into, I'm going to go quickly through here just so you can picture the army. Then you go into Persia. Persia um, is a very easy one. In fact, nobody disagrees, and this one's not complicated. 
Persia is Iran. So Iran also is in a confederation to invade Israel. Can you see how big this army is? Okay, this is a massive army. And Ethiopia, or Cush, depending on your version, uh, basically is Sudan. And then you look at Put, is basically Libya. And so you put it all together, and you have Russia, Iran, Turkey, Sudan, Libya, and maybe parts of Afghanistan, maybe parts of Germany. But how many know this is a massive invasion? And the Bible says it's going to happen in the last days. So as you begin to look, we know who the who's are. I just want you to think how amazing this is. That the Bible predicts the exact armies that are going to be coming against Israel in the last days after they come back to the land. And so now we have to look at it and be good watchmen on the wall and say, okay, Russia, Iran, and Turkey are meeting together as allies. They seem to dislike Israel. How many know that Russia was poised to attack Israel and funded the attack on Israel in 1948? How many know in 1967 they were poised to attack Israel again, but every time we stepped in, they backed off? And they've been funding those nations since. In fact, if you look at the weapons that they're using, you look at the technology that they use, it's Russian. Okay, And so we see an alliance, and so this is why on Twitter, and I'm just trying to educate Christians to watch the news. And when you begin to see Russia, Turkey, and Iran, and let me tell you, every area that's mentioned in the Bible here, every landmass, is very strong Islamic, and not only Islamic, but Islamic terrorism. In fact, they're very much opposed, very anti-Semitic and very opposed to Israel. In fact, that's really miraculous. And so as you begin to see it, you see the potential that this could happen in our days. How many know if you were a watchman on the wall and you had this in your hand and you were watching the landscape, you would say, well, wait a minute. Israel's a nation now. These nations seem to be coming together a little bit. It's a possibility. Okay. Now we look at the what. What is going on? In fact, I missed a few actually. Gomer and Tagarma, which is both Turkey. So I actually missed that. Um, And I could spend a lot more time on the names and breaking them down, but it'll take a little bit more time. So let's get to the what. What do they do? Ezekiel 38, verse 13 to 39, explains what happens. In fact, uh, get this. This is how great the Bible is. The Bible predicts, I want you to think how hard this is. The Bible predicts the invasion, tells us exactly who the armies are in the invasion. How many think that's amazing? Then the Bible predicts the results of the war. Okay, and I'm going to go over that. How many think that's amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if you could predict World War I or you could predict World War II? And not only have you predicted it, you predicted all the nations that were involved in that war. And then you predicted exactly how it would transpire. And then you predicted exactly what the cleanup afterward would look like for years. That'd be a pretty good prophet. And the Bible does all of that, which is quite amazing, really. In fact, we look at it and we, we, I don't think we um, realize how amazing that is sometimes, what the Bible predicts. So the Bible predicts that these nations will invade Israel. Now, I want you to understand when they invade Israel, you say, well, Israel's powerful. They have a powerful army. They have a powerful, you know, nuclear arsenal. But how many know this is maybe the biggest underdog in history? There's not many wars that was a bigger underdog. To gather that many allies together to go against one small nation is a major underdog. And um, this really... If you look at 1967, 1948, 1973, all invasions, they pale in comparison to this. They're not even close. This is such a big army, okay? And so they're a big underdog. 
And God says in Ezekiel 39, 18, he says, It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger and my zeal and in my blazing wrath. So here's Israel, and the Bible prophesies that they will be helpless. In fact, in order for this prophecy to be factual and to be true, Israel is going to have no help from anybody. They're going to look like sitting ducks. And God is going to specifically intervene in a moment. In fact, how many have ever heard of the Six-Day War? And we've heard of all these battles that take all of this time. This battle is not even six days. This is a very fast battle. In fact, as you go in, you begin to look at the things that happen. And there are four things the Bible mentions, and, and I'm not going to try to fit this in a newspaper ad. I'm going to tell you exactly what God says happens. There is a massive earthquake. I mean, no, Israel probably couldn't create an earthquake, right? There is infighting among the armies that come against them. So I don't know what happens. I don't know if something confuses their technology. I don't know if it's old, you know, rivalries. I don't know what happens, but God confuses the people that come against Israel, they're on the northern mountains of Israel. That's the Golan Heights area. And whatever happens, they get confused and they turn against each other. In fact, it's the most um, destructive, friendly fire episode probably in history. Happens at this moment. Okay. Then we see disease. Some type of disease falls upon them while they're attacking Israel. We don't know what the disease is. All right. Then the fourth thing is there is a torrential rain, there's hell, there's fire, there's burning sulfur, some type of immense heat uh, just covers this army, okay? And so the Bible prophesies, don't you think it's kind of bold for God to say, in fact, God brags at one point, I don't know if it's bragging if it's God, but he says, I tell you the end from the beginning. He said, go to your gods and see if they'll do that for you. Because I tell you the end from the beginning. He actually says it that way. You know, he's taunting them. And God actually tells you, here's the four things that are going to happen. You know, they're going to be sitting ducks. There's going to be a massive army. It's going to happen in the last days. My people are going to be in the land. They're going to be brought from all around the world. They're going to come to the land that was in waste. Um, we're, we're probably right in the middle of that time. And then it even talks about, here's what happens after the war. So this is amazing that the Bible goes in this detail. It says that there will be so many dead bodies, get this, that it will be a feast for the birds and the fowl. Well, obviously, that one's not a hard one to fulfill. If there's that many dead bodies, there are going to be animals everywhere eating up the bodies. Just imagine how many. But then it says they'll bury the dead for seven months. Now, for a long time, people said that's impossible. How can you bet? They, they calculated how many bodies would be there. And they said, there's no way you can bury that many dead bodies in seven months. And then they begin to see things like World War II and several conflicts. And then military began using bulldozers and clearing out land and just dumping the bodies in. And, and uh, so now it's very doable. And I know this is grotesque, but it's very doable to bury that many dead bodies in seven months. But the Bible specifically says, yeah, it'll be... Um, seven months of burying the bodies. Uh, then the body, the Bible is very clear in Ezekiel 39, 9 and 10 says that they will burn weapons that were used in that battle for seven years. So specifically, the Bible says seven years to bury all of the weaponry that's even left. Or it takes longer to burn the weaponry than it does to bury the bodies. Okay, but the Bible still is very specific. And then it says another thing, that there will be salvation. The whole world will see what happened, and there will be salvation among Jews and Gentiles. Um, So we kind of know what's going to happen. Everybody have a pretty good idea what it's going to look like? Do you think if you've seen this happen, you would recognize it and say that's a prophecy? And um, I don't know, a lot of people didn't recognize when Israel returned to their homeland. You know, something that just kind of hit you right in the head. And the Bible prophesied it and prophesied and prophesied in so many places. And a lot of people didn't recognize that, hey, this is prophecy being fulfilled. Um, so anyway, that's what the battle looks like. So that's the, um, oh, the, uh, 
Or what question I answer? The what? Now we go into the when. And this turns out to be the hardest one to answer. Uh, we know it's going to happen in the last days. But there are lots of different ideas about when this battle will happen. And anybody who says they know the exact moment that this battle happens is guessing. Because there are problems with each one where you place it. There are problems um, with each area. There's some that are better than others, but it's difficult to place. You have to answer certain questions of why you put it in that place. So let me give you the one of the worst ones first, okay? One of the worst ones is what's called a preterist. How many have ever heard of a preterist? And a preterist believes that everything happened and it's already been historically fulfilled. And because it's been historically fulfilled, this is not prophecy. This is not the future. It's got to be boring to be a preterist, right? <laughs> okay. And so you will read online uh, some, and it's not a very... Um, there's maybe one guy and a few people that adhere to his ideas that says that, hey, this was already fulfilled during the time of Esther. Um, when the Persian Empire um, um, put down the rebellion of Amalek, in, uh, I believe it's Esther chapter 9, and so they'll say it was fulfilled then, but it's very difficult, terrible idea because it doesn't match up. In fact, there's about 30 different areas that don't match up exactly, but they say, oh, it fits, you know, and they say, you know, it happened in that time. And some will say it was in Antiochus Epiphanes um, when the Greeks tried to um, uh, invade Jerusalem and, and try to match it up with that and say it happened then, very poor uh, theory. Uh, then you begin to look at the futurist views. And so there are a few, now this is where it gets really important for us. There are very few people that think this happens before the rapture of the church. You say, well, why is that important? Because the Bible tells us to be watchful and to be waiting for our Lord. And so the when question becomes very important to us. Because if I say that I'm waiting for Christmas, or I'm waiting for New Year's Day, and I'm in Thanksgiving weekend, what does that tell you? That I'm pretty close to Christmas, right? And so if I look around my world, and I see the potential which has not been there forever. You know, Israel has not been a nation. This couldn't be fulfilled. You know, Iran, a, a, a partner with Russia and Turkey. You know, these things have never happened. And so if I look around in my world and I begin to see all the elements starting to come together in the timing part of it, and I know that there's almost nobody that says it happens before the rapture, then what does that tell you about the potential timing of the rapture of the church? It means it could happen at any moment. And so now we progress and there are some, in fact there will be a larger percentage that will say, hey, this happens either at the rapture or simultaneous to the rapture is when this happens. Like, the invaders are mounting their attack and about to attack Israel. And at that moment is the rapture of the church. There are some that uh, place it right there. Okay. And so that's a lot of people don't like that because it's kind of a sign and kind of an event proclaiming the rapture. Um, other people, in fact, a lot of really good commentators believe that the rapture will occur and in between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation, which is the signing of the seven-year peace agreement with Israel, that in between that period, there are lots of things that happen. In fact, uh, here's the logic of this theory, okay? The idea is that um, unless the Antichrist is signing the peace agreement at that moment, and the church is raptured, then there's some kind of space between the rapture, the falling away, this war, 
and then the beginning of the tribulation. And so people that have this view that this war happens after the rapture but before the tribulation will say this, and I want you to think about this. What if all of the Muslim armies that are involved in this war and Russia are on the northern part of Israel and what happens if, like the Bible says, in one day that entire army is destroyed? What are the repercussions of that? And so the repercussions would be that the church is absent. There's no leadership from the church anymore. There's a whole different world without the church here. How many know that? Now all of the Muslim armies and the Russian armies have created a vacuum of leadership. Russia is no more a player on the world stage. The Muslims are momentarily taken out of the way because of this war and this loss. And now Israel becomes a superpower in the region. The Antichrist, who is European, makes an agreement with Israel at some point, And they would be the one you would want to make the agreement with because they are the superpower in the Middle East at that time. And they together make this agreement. And there's peace in the Middle East. And here's the big one. People with that theory say now they can build their temple because the Muslims no longer are a threat. And so here's Israel. The church is gone. But Israel feels like they're in their messianic age. They feel like that they are fulfilling prophecy. They built their temple. They believe that their Antichrist uh, is actually their Christ. And they make an agreement with him. And then for three and a half years, and then after three and a half years, he breaks the agreement, the abomination that causes desolation. The other theory that a lot of really good quality scholars um, say is it'll happen uh, toward the midway mark. That the only way Israel can be living securely without walls is to have an agreement already with the Antichrist. And during that agreement with the Antichrist, then they're attacked. And then they're double-crossed, and so this war happens around the middle of the tribulation. But the important thing with timing to understand is, and then some people will say, it's uh, the exact same war as Armageddon. I could give you about ten points where there are different explanations in each of those two wars. But the Battle of Armageddon happens within the seven-year period. And some people will say it happens even after the seven-year period. But I would say somewhere between the rapture and the three and a half years into the tribulation, this war happens, which is important to us because if this war is happening, there's a good chance that we're probably already gone. So we've got to be really careful. We've got to understand the timing because if we see these storm clouds beginning to gather around Israel, and we begin to see these armies gather around Israel, uh, you better look up and be ready. You better be a watchman on the wall and understand. So if we see in our news that these nations are coming together and people are threatening Israel, how many know Israel is the thing that we need to watch? Because these armies will amass around Israel in a moment. God will take a, uh, a hook and just, he said, I'll summon you when that day comes and I'll bring you and all these armies around Israel to attack them and I'm going to glorify myself through it. So that is the when. Next one is the where. And obviously, and this is why this one's very important because uh, I know I'm going long here, but I'm trying to get the whole prophecy in one sermon. Where is very easy, but this is why the, uh, the preterist ideal of this happening with the Persian Empire is a bad ideal. There were, uh, the Persian Empire, they were fighting in 127 different provinces, and it was the Jews against the children of Amalek. Okay, and so, but this doesn't happen somewhere else. This particular war happens on the mountains of Israel. So that is, uh, Ezekiel 39, 2, I shall turn around, I will drive you. On, I will take you to the remotest part, from the remotest parts of the north. I'll bring you against the mountains of Israel. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel and all your troops and the people that are with you. And I will give you as food uh, to every predatory bird and beast of the field. Why? The Bible says that, um, the answer to why, the Bible says, I will put a hook into your mouth. And uh, in fact, you can read it in Ezekiel 38, I believe, verse 10. And it says that it'll be an economic reason. They want to plunder Israel. 
Um, they literally want to come in and plunder Israel, and God puts a hook in their mouth. That means that Russia, Turkey, Iran will have an economic reason uh, to want to plunder Israel. And um, I could give you lots of reasons why that is, um, but I would encourage you to stay very careful and watch. You know, um, it could be oil, it could be gas, you know, it could be just the economic water, you know, the, the warm water port that's there. Um, there's lots of different reasons. It could just be pure hatred in a lot of ways. You know, how many know that? Hallelujah. That's always going to be mixed in. So that is the why. Um, the how. And these are some of the things I've already covered. There's the, in order for this to happen, certain things in our news have to happen. Number one, Israel has to be gathered into Israel. They have to come from all the nations of the world. And we can check that box, right? They came from all the nations of the world. And they gathered in Israel. So we can check that. Most generations can't say that. Another thing has to happen. The mountains of Israel have to belong to Israel. I mean, no, that's important. Until 1967, Israel did not own the mountains. Um, Whenever they had this war, all the Arab nations came against Israel in 1967. And that's when they took control. In fact, in the news, you've heard of the Golan Heights. Golan Heights are those mountains that are there. So the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, Jerusalem, uh, those areas were won during the 1968 war. And without that war, uh, we can't say that they're the mountains that belong to Israel. And so now it says, I'll bring you to the mountains of Israel against my people. So check and check. we got check mark on both of those. Um, so what's another thing? They have to be able to be living securely in the land, meaning it is their land and there's no doubt about it. And so this is one where, this is why one person will say the middle or after the uh, tribulation starts and another one will say before, uh, depending on answering the question, are they secure without walls? And so I think you could, you could say that if Ezekiel were looking at Israel in a vision right now, he'd say it's a land without walls because um, normally you had a wall around the entire city, okay, around the entire area to keep invaders out. Now the only walls they have are a few um, walls that are, you know, keeping, separating Bethlehem and Jerusalem. There's a few on the Gaza Strip, but not really anything going all the way around it. You know, so very interesting there. Um, they are securely in the land. Another thing is Russia has to be a leader. They have to be a major player on the international scene. How many think when you watch the news that Russia is a player? Okay, very obviously. Another one is there has to be a rise of Islam. A lot of people don't know this, but the prophecies of Islam, one of the things that has to occur for Islam uh, in the future is what they call the War of Gog and Magog. (laughs) So everything in Islamic prophecy, um, Muhammad actually took the War of Gog and Magog, but he switched who the victors were and and who were being affected. He was saying that the Muslims were being attacked in the war of Gog and Magog. And, and uh, so basically the person they prophesied as their Messiah is actually the Antichrist. And the battle of Gog and Magog is actually, um, they're the good guys and God's people are the bad guys. And in the Bible, God's people are the good guys and they're the bad guys. And so they prophesied that there has to be a war of Gog and Magog and that, um, and they talk the same thing: fire, boils, disease, all, earthquake. All those things are prophesied uh, by Muhammad, but they're actually they're the bad guy, or they're the good guys instead of the bad guys in the drama. So the rise of Islam. How many know that when Gog and Magog come and attack Israel, they're just fulfilling what they think is their end times? And uh, so the rise of Islam is very important. Um, now I'm finishing up here. Uh, Iran has to be a major player, and um, Iran also has to be Islamic, uh, or they at least have to be a part of this alliance. Turkey, one thing you might watch in the news, Turkey um, Turkey is kind of one of those countries where it's located, where it can either be an ally of the West or the East, and they kind of vacillate and go back and forth. When you see Turkey lean more toward the East, which they're doing right now, they're leaning more toward the east. Um, that's when this prophecy would be fulfilled. Because Turkey has to be an ally with Russia and the eastern nations, not western nations. 
So that's one thing you want to watch in the news is Turkey. Um, and then one of the last things that's very important, the Bible talks about Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and its villages, and those who are around. Um, it talks about the allies. And so depending on what your interpretation of Tarshish is, um, if you say it's Spain, then it's uh, Central and South America and parts of America or their allies or the young lions. Or if you say that Tarshish is Britain, which a lot of people will interpret as that, uh, that means that it's Britain and all of its young lions, which would be America, Canada. But anyway, it says that uh, um, Sheba and Dedan would be Saudi Arabia, and then Tarshish would be them and all their allies. Uh, whoever this group of people is, they look on to the destruction. They're not a part of it, but they look on and they just don't care. They, they have a very slight protest. They say, oh, why did you go and do that? And so you would have to have that group of people just watch and not actually be allies of Israel. And how many can see that? How many can see Saudi Arabia just saying, hey, you know, you shouldn't have done that? And uh, America, Britain, Canada, you just have to have administrations that are um, opposed to doing anything. Now, up until now, America has stood strong, 48, 67, 73. You know, every time Israel's attacked, we step up and everybody backs down. But if there were an administration that wouldn't stand up, then this could be fulfilled very easily. So stand on your feet this morning. Hallelujah. Worship team, how many like this kind of study? I know I'm kind of boring, but you guys like this kind of study on the end? Three do, so I'm good. I'm glad. Three like this. All right. Things to really watch for. Hallelujah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that you would make us watchmen, Lord, that we would be very careful to know your word. Um, very careful not to be fooled by false prophecies, false teachings, and that we'd be humble and aware, Lord, and uh, just carefully living our lives, always ready, Lord, for you and your return. Bless your people, and um, Lord, just put your spirit upon them to teach them everything, Lord, so they would have confidence in you in these last days, Lord. Your name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Let's just take a few moments and um, just really kind of digest what uh, what I talked about this morning. And and um, obviously, if you have any questions or anything like that, I can answer them after church. Hallelujah. Close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord, and uh, just be with your people, Lord. Bless them, Lord, and keep your hand upon them, Lord. Fill them with your word and your spirit, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.